Welcome to episode 105 of the Rocky Mountain UFO podcast. Today we have part two of our interview with the legendary author Alan Dean Foster. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain UFO podcast with Doc Pearson. I've gone back and watched some of the Star Trek animated series. I think I first saw it when I was a kid on TV and I was surprised at how good the writing is. You know, it's not high budget by any means. And then I know you did a bunch of novelizations from like around 10 episodes in the 70s to go uh, along with that. Was that a fun project or was that a challenge? It was a little of both. Uh, actually, there were 18 episodes. They ended up being uh, 10 books, the Star Trek logs. Okay. What happened was uh, Judy Lynn Del Rey, who was the editor at Valentine Del Rey, science fiction line at that time, a uh, very interesting, uh, very remarkable lady, found a hole in the screenplay, uh, screenplay, a hole in the contract that I believe Paramount had with Bantam Books, which supposedly said that Bantam Books had the rights to publish all versions of Star Trek in printed form throughout the universe forever, but neglected to include animated film. Judy Lynn came across that and immediately bought those rights and then needed somebody to do something with them. So I got the call and I had seen the animated series or at least a number of the episodes. And she said, would you take this project on? You can do it any way you want which is always a good opening Sally if you want to involve a creative person. And I said, sure, but I can't get a book out of each of these 20 minute cartoon scripts. It just can't be done properly. And she said, I don't care, do it however you think best. So I would take three of the episodes and put them in one book and try to link the novellas that resulted together in some short brief way or form to make it read more like a a complete book. By the time we got around to the last four episodes, Judy called me back and she said, you have to do one episode per book. And I said, well, I can't do that. If I could have done that, I would have done that in the first place. She said, I don't care. You have to do it. The books are selling like crazy. You have four episodes left. We need four books out of those four episodes. And Judy Lynn could be very persuasive. So after the conversation and the phone call, I thought, well, what what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And what I ended up doing for the last four episodes and the last four books was the same thing I had essentially done from the beginning. I adapted the 20-minute cartoon script into a 20,000-word novella and then added 40 to 50,000 words of completely original material to the rest of the books. And we ended up with four books. So I got to write some original Star Trek at that point. I had also, prior to that, done seven scripts for talking records for a company called Peter Pan Records. So I was writing actual dialogue for Star Trek characters prior to that. I got 500 bucks a script. That was big money for me back in those days. And I'm pretty proud of those, pretty proud of those works too. Uh, you'll notice on the poster, I'll point out to people uh, that you put up on screen, not the poster, but what you put up on screen, the kind of underwater lizardy looking creature over there. When I was in junior high school, one of my best friends was a guy named Robert Klein, Bob Klein. Bob was one of these kids who can draw anything from the time they're six years old. He was the best artist in our school and he always wanted to go work for Disney and we lost touch after high school. Many years go by, I'm doing these book novelizations. I'm seeing the stills from the films that Valentine Del Rey is going to use for the covers. 
And I see this one and I thought, gee, that really looks like the kind of stuff that Bob did. That looks like his style. So I called Filmation, who did the Saturday morning Star Trek shows. I said, you have an artist working for you named Bob Klein? And they're like, oh yeah, he does a lot of stuff for us. He's working on the show and blah, blah, blah. After which Bob and I got together and reminisced about old times and went our separate ways. And eventually Bob did go to work for Disney, long since retired. But we had a good time. He was one of the kids that I would sit in the back of the theater with. We would criticize loudly the bad special effects in the films we were watching. On Paramount Plus right now, gone back and redid Star Trek, the motion picture, the special effects and added enhanced effects and things. And right at the beginning, it says, you know, story by Alan Dean Foster. Do you have anything to say about the motion picture? I know there's a lot been written about it already, but anything uh, interesting from your perspective coming up with that story? I think um, it was originally like going to be a TV pilot, right? Well, it went back and forth for years. Paramount was ambivalent about whether or not to bring the show back as a TV series, revive the TV series or do a motion picture. And the apocryphal story, which I don't know if it's true, but this is, as you say, has all been written about in exhaustive detail, is that after Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Wars came out, the daughter of Charles Bluthorn, who was the CEO of Gulf and Western, the conglomerate that owned, among other things, Paramount Studios, said, Daddy, why can't we have a Star Trek movie? And sometimes that's how things work in Hollywood. And... Uh, things were switched back. They were going to revive the TV series. Uh, Norway Productions, which was Gene Roddenberry's production company, was soliciting treatments, story ideas for proposed one-hour TV episodes. They decided that they were going to open the revived TV series with a two-hour movie for TV. The treatment I had done, which was uh, based on a two-page outline that Roddenberry had given me called Robots Return was selected. I then expanded it, expanded the treatment to carry two hours instead of one hour, and everything snowballed from there, which people can read about ad infinitum online, except when it became a big budget motion picture project instead of just a TV episode, I became an instant non-person at Norway Productions and Paramount, and that's just the way the movie business works sometimes. I was young. I had no pull. And I was made to disappear. So for better or worse, that's it. The first five minutes of the movie is all mine. And after that, things diverge quite a bit. Well, that's the best five minutes of the movie. <laughs> well, I'll, then I will take credit for it, uh, along with Jerry Goldsmith, who is as important to the success of that film. And it is a successful film as anyone else. It's a wonderful score. Oh yeah, that that beginning score, that music, that kind of spacey music, and that cloud and the Klingons and everything—that's that's as good as any Star Trek that you see on the big screen, I think. So it was definitely that, fun. That's the kind of stuff I like to write. I say, well, you know, you did that. You knew people from Star Wars. You knew other people. Why didn't you stay in Los Angeles and write for the movies? And my wife and I had a brief discussion one day when unfortunate things were happening. Uh, in relation to the Star Star Trek film, which again, people can read about in lots of places. And she looked at me one day, and remember I had grown up in Los Angeles and expected to live in the area my whole life. She said, you sure you wanna live here to be near these people? Thought about it. I was uh, not happy at the time for various reasons. And I knew she 
she hated uh, the movie business and wasn't thrilled with Los Angeles. And I said, let's find some place we both like, because I didn't see myself living in West Texas. And I'll write my books and nobody will bother me. And if anything happens with this business, fine. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. And that was 42 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. So you've been... It was a good good decision. That's awesome. You definitely made the right choice. I wanted to touch quickly on some of the other book franchises that you did, and then some of your own franchises too. That's got to be fun to create your own without the bounds of like the movie studios being able to create your own world. I bet you that's a lot of fun too, isn't it? It's it's what you want to do. Don't get me wrong. I don't disavow any of the movie novelizations I've written. I write them as much, as I said, as much as a fan, as I do as a professional writer. I think that's one of the reasons why people like them. They can tell that I'm enjoying myself while I'm writing the movie adaptation. But I never set out when I began writing to become someone who just does work for hire. I, like most people who write, uh, prefer to do their own original stuff. I just happened to fall into a career path that allowed me to do both. Even though you're not in Hollywood, they keep coming back to you. You got the best of both worlds. Well, I am sufficiently far away from the business physically to where I don't have to deal with a lot of the nonsense and the tsuris that goes on. Uh, Sometimes awkward things still happen, but most of the time, the people who are involved in making a film, particularly a, a big budget film, are wholly involved with making that film. Uh, as when you said earlier, well, when you work with J.J. Abrams, I didn't work with J.J. Abrams, and he didn't work with me. He was kind of busy making the movie, which occupies all of your time. I've seen directors on set, and they literally have no other lives. It, it's all consuming. They certainly don't have time to deal with ancillary franchise rights, like books, for example. We had no contact. We've to this day had no contact. And that's fine because everything has worked out fine from my end and I'm sure from his end as well. And that's that's the way that's the way it should be. I have written a book. Uh, all of these questions that people have asked over the years finally occurred to me that this is history of the sort. And I won't always be available for podcasts and interviews. So I put all of these stories and anecdotes as best as I could remember them, because I didn't take notes at the time, into a book called The Director Should Have Shot You, which is available from Centipede Press, and which starts with the very first movie adaptation I did, an Italian film called Luana, and ends with the last one I did, which was Alien Covenant. So if anybody wants more information and more stories, from all of these films that I've done book adaptations of, uh, they can pick up that very nicely printed with pictures copy of the director should have shot you. Yeah, we'll put a link to that um, in the show notes. So you have that too. As young people get into writing today and, you know, older people decide to try their luck at writing, what would be some of your advice for writers on how to monetize your work or turn writing into a full-time career like you, what you've done? It's the same way you do it with any, any profession that you choose. You research your profession, which in the case of writers means you need to read as much of what you want to write as possible. If you want to read science, if you want to write science fiction, you need to read as much science fiction as possible, not just contemporary science fiction, but 
some of that older science fiction that I mentioned before, because there's nothing worse than spending a year or so on a book and sending it to an agent or a publisher only to get a letter back saying, you write really well, but this story idea was done by Ross Rocklin in Astounding Science Fiction in 1933. So you need to know the history of whatever you're working on, whether it's science fiction or Westerns or mysteries or true mysteries, or if you wanna write a book on Lincoln, you need to find a different angle on Lincoln because believe it or not, people have already written books on Abraham Lincoln. So you see what I'm talking about uh, when I say you need to do your research. The other thing is you need to work at it every day. There is no easy way. If you wait for inspiration, you will never become a successful writer. You need to find what you want to write. You need to settle on that idea and that subject matter, and you need to work at it. I always tell people if you do a little bit every day, if you do one page a day, at the end of the year, you'll have a 365-page book. And anybody who wants to be a writer should be able to do one page, double-space typed a day. If you can't do that, then you're probably not going to become a writer. Ray Bradbury, when he was just starting out, set himself the task of writing a short story a week, figuring that if nothing else happened, at the end of the year, he would have written 52 short stories. As it turned out, he didn't have to do that. It worked out quite well for him. There are other writers. There's a wonderful science fiction writer named Theodore Sturgeon, and Ted was just the opposite. He would do nothing for weeks and weeks and weeks, and his wife, his spouse at that time, of which he had several, would look at him and say, Ted, when are you going to write something? And he would say, I am writing, which is something a lot of people don't understand about creative types. Uh, a lot of writing is getting started, and that means formulating things in your head, not necessarily writing the entire book out in your mind, but at least getting bits and pieces of it together. There's a great story about the composer Gustav Mahler, uh, and he was um, a big fan of his music, was in Vienna at the time, walking with a friend, and lo and behold, here comes Mahler. And the visitor, who's a little bit awed, says, good morning, Herr Mahler. And Mahler just walks right past him with his head down, doesn't look in his direction, says nothing. The visitor is shocked. He says, well, that was really kind of rude. And the person he's with says he was working. So you have to understand that about writing too. But you really should get to the point to where you can do something even a little bit every day. A lot of beginning writers make the mistake of thinking that, well, chapter one has to be perfect before I can start chapter two. Wrong. The important thing is to get from page five to page six, not to make sure that page five is perfect. That's what rewrites are for. The important thing is to get from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And you can go back and fix it. Uh, if you get to chapter 12, page 100, and you're going to page 120, and you're on page 110, and you've got no idea how to get from 110 to 120, write something. Doesn't have to be great, doesn't have to be immortal but it has to be something. And you'll find out that once you get to the next chapter, page 121, things will go much easier and you go back and fix that chapter. That's my, that's my basic advice for anybody, no matter what they're writing. It's great advice. Just like building up a mosque, just keep, keep doing it and it, it will get better over time. Arthur Rubinstein, who was one of the great pianists of the 20th century, one of the great pianists of all time, as far as we know, in his 80s, 
even though he knew the works he was going to play by heart, would practice every day. Practice an hour, practice two hours, every day. The same pieces that he had played for years and years, decades and decades, because you have to practice. As you say, you have to keep that muscle working. And it's the same thing with writing. And the only way you can do that is to do something every day. Yeah, no, that's amazing advice. Love it. Uh, this is a Rocky Mountain UFO podcast. So living out in Arizona, I figured I would ask you if you had ever seen anything like a UFO or UAP or something strange in the night. I know Phoenix had the Phoenix lights back in the day. I have uh, something on my website called the UFO tracker, and I just pulled up the area around you, Flagstaff, Prescott. And those are the sightings of people in your communities that have log taken the time and log uh, sightings, which there's some, some pretty interesting ones. I don't want to say crazy, but interesting. So I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen anything out there. Out in the high desert, I used to live in Nevada, north of Area 51, and we used to see crazy things in the desert at night, you know, floating. But the, it was also close to some test grounds and stuff, too. Have you ever seen anything that made you think? I can only speak for myself, of course. The, the only strange experiences I've had are with uh, Hollywood or cephalopods, and those are mutually exclusive. My take on it, without wishing to spit in somebody's holy water, is that if there is a species out in the galaxy that has solved the problem of interstellar travel, and they want to visit a place like Earth, they will not be seen by some farmer in Iowa looking out over his cows at night. They will sit down in front of the White House in Washington, D.C., and step out and say, howdy. Right. If they don't want to be seen, and they have achieved that degree of scientific expertise, then we're not going to see them. Unless, of course, it's like uh, the two aliens in The Simpsons, and they just like messing with our heads. Right. They have a good sense of humor. That actually is it's an option that I would I would like to see come true, because if they have a good sense of humor, I think we'll be all right. If they've let us live this long, they must have a good sense of humor, right? And I've also heard the, it's the zoo planet theory. Uh, people think Earth Earth's just kind of like a zoo. They come in, like we tag wildlife when we're hunting and stuff. They do the same thing with us, and they're just messing with people. So that could be it, too. It would have to involve amusement of some kind, because it, there's no way they could take this place seriously. I mean, it's hard enough for us to take it seriously. There's a great line from the introduction to Moby Dick, which most people don't think of as a funny book, but which has a lot of humor in it, where Melville says, there are certain queer times in every man's life, and I'm paraphrasing here, where he takes his entire universe for some great cosmic joke, the purpose of which he is unaware, but the certainty of which he is sure that he is, and again, I'm paraphrasing, the subject of said joke. And I think Wait. if Melville could come up with that 150 years ago, it's probably a good, probably a good tenant to live by as far as aliens are concerned. Just some final questions. You have a book that you'd recommend, Alan, that you're reading currently or something that everybody should have that's maybe one that people haven't read that has definitely inspired you? Uh, well, the books that I read are mostly nonfiction. There's a wonderful book called Lakota Nation, written by a Finnish author whose name is unpronounceable, which taught me more about the North American Plains Indians than everything I had read or studied up to that point. That's a terrific book. Did you ever read, uh, was it Black Elk Speaks? That's a great one too. I think it was a guy, a Nebraska a newspaper reporter who wrote that, but it's the same thing. It definitely gives you a different perspective of the Plains Indians. Like, Absolutely. I, I hardly recommend that. 
and I read a lot of history. I don't want to get specific, but there's an important book that I just ordered because it just came out. I forget the title, but it's by Bill Browder. Bill Browder was for a while the largest non-Russian investor in Russian businesses. And in Red Notice, which was his previous book, he details what happened to him, what happened to his lawyer, Serge Magnitsky, who died in prison because he was denied proper medical care, uh, as a result of which, and as a result of which uh, Bill Browder's efforts, we have the Magnitsky Act now, which people can read about if they want. He's come out with another book, which follows up from that. It's called Frozen something. I'm sorry, I forget. Sorry, Bill. The people get it through your name. Just came out. Uh, the reviews are across the board wonderful. And bearing in mind what's going on on our funny, humorous planet right now, uh, I think that's the book people should at least look at. And I can say that without having read it, which yeah. I don't uh, I don't do, but rarely. I also wanted to ask you about Nikolai Tesla. I'm in Colorado. He did a lot of his experiments in Colorado Springs. And I thought, hey, they must have a Tesla museum down there. And there is nothing down there. You can't even tell that he used to work there. Guys like that were way ahead of their times. Have you done any research on him or ever thought any about all the stuff that he did back way in the 1800s and 1900s? A lot of these guys were way ahead of their time. Well, I've read stuff off and on. I haven't read any specific biography. But uh, one, the thing that is most interesting to me today are his experiments with what we call broadcast power, which is the idea that you don't need wires to transmit power from one source to another and has been dealt with with people exploring things like building, building gigantic microwave transmitters in space to use solar energy outside the atmosphere to transfer power down here on Earth to run things. Uh, as you say, he was well ahead of his time. Uh, he There's a film, a movie, a pretty good film about uh, his uh, his fight with Edison oh. and whole controversy as to whether or not we should go in the United States with AC or DC. Mm -hmm. Really, really good film. There's a director's cut of it out now. Again, can't remember the number, the number, but or the name. Can't remember the name, but people could find it very easily if they just looked up Tesla versus Edison film. It would pop up immediately. It's very well done. It's not all about Tesla, obviously, but. Yeah, he was more of an inventor and not really a good marketer or business person, from what I understand. So it, he was like a lot of people that are highly intelligent, like him. Yeah, that wasn't really what he wanted to do. It's like, um, what's a good, it's like writers who aren't particularly interested in seeing their books adapted into films. And they don't necessarily want to work on the films. They want to go off and write another book. So somebody else takes your Somebody else takes your baby and does whatever they want with it. Musicians are the same way. You read so many stories of like rock and roll musicians. You were talking about Alice Cooper earlier and other musicians who agents or people have taken their work and they've signed bad contracts because they don't know kind of what they're doing from a business sense. And that, that seems to be kind of a theme that repeats itself over and over, you know, with creative type people. Can I recommend three bands real quick? Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Because my two favorite kinds of music are classical and heavy metal, which makes it difficult to hold a music conversation sometimes with people. But Disturbed. Oh, yeah. Land of Confusion. I know that song. Yeah. Uh, Ginger, who I saw in December in, in Tempe, Arizona, are deserving of real support, not just because it's great music, but they're from eastern Ukraine. Wow. Okay. Wow. And my favorite band, Nightwish, which has been around for a very long time, 
but which like bands like Ginger doesn't get played in the United States because they don't fit the corporate mold. So we get happy, happy pop tunes here instead of some real stuff uh, like Nightwish. So there's three recommendations I'll throw out there to people for music. I'll definitely check that out. I worked in rock radio when I was in, in the 80s and 90s. So I got to got to spin records for a living for a while. And that was a lot of fun. I got to meet a lot of those bands too. Do you know Nightwish? I haven't heard of Nightwish. I definitely have heard of Disturbed and have a few of those songs, you know, on my playlist. And Nightwish has eight or, eight or 10 dates currently in the United States. I think their last two dates are in Los Angeles in May. And if anybody gets a chance to see them, if they're not all sold out, they don't play giant venues in this country as opposed to other countries, but it's real music. The guy who writes most of the music, uh, Tuomas Olapainen, is a real composer. And in fact, they use a London Philharmonic Orchestra for backing tracks. So it's, it's different and it's epic. And a lot of it is very fantasy oriented. And the lead singer, Floriansen, who's Dutch, the rest of the band mostly is Finnish, uh, is a little over six feet tall and is a very dominating performer on stage and can sing anything and seems like a very sweet person, which is pretty good. Her nickname is the Valkyrie by her fans. And again, something that people can look up online. Uh, one of their songs from the Wacken Festival in Germany in 2013 is called Ghost Love Story. And among reactors on YouTube, I believe it is the most reacted to video, something like 18 million views. I'll, I'll put links to, to those bands so people can check it out too. So that'd be Good. awesome. Before we wrap up, Alan, um, what do you have coming out that people, you know, books that you have coming out that you can point people towards, put on our list on our Amazon list of books to look for coming out from Alan? I have a standalone science fiction novel coming out from the wonderful Wordfire Press called Prodigals, okay. which is sort of an invasion story. And well, I don't want to give anything away. And I have a book, which is a collection of 100 of my columns for a local paper called Senses, uh, which, is, which are about art, science, and society in general. Uh, the book is called I Shoot the Breeze, Am I Murdering the Weather? That will be out also, I think, later this year. And there's some short stories here and there. People can just, you know, if they're curious, Google my name or go to my Facebook page or Facebook fan page, which one of my publishers supports. My website has a lot of information about me and previous books and some really nice interactive maps and a lot of other things, but it was built with very old HTML and is very difficult to update. So I do most of my updates on my two Facebook pages. We'll um, also link to that in our show notes too. So I'd like to thank you again for your time. Alan, it was amazing talking to you today. It was very fun. And it's just great to see that you're still writing and very involved. And in. I'm excited to see your next book come out. And maybe we can talk again sometime. Have a great day. Sure. You too, Darren. Thanks. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain UFO Podcast with Doc Pearson. Thanks for listening.